So we've been unpacking this, uh, this glorious dialogue that's been recorded for us in John chapter 17. As Jesus prays to his father, uh, moments before the events of Passion Week are about to unfold. It's what we have come to know as uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Some have regarded it as the holy ground of the gospel events. It's the entirety of chapter 17, and it's, it's broken up really into three sections. Uh, we see in the beginning, Jesus prays for himself, and then Jesus prays uh, for his disciples, those who, who walked with him, those who were experiencing time with Jesus at that moment. And then today, we, we pick up on the third focus of this sacred prayer, where, where Jesus prays for the church. He prays for all of those who would, who would come to faith through the words of his disciples. In short, he prays for you and he prays for me. He prays for the church to which he is the ultimate shepherd and overseer of. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn together to John chapter 17. Uh, John chapter 17, last week we looked at um, verses 6 through 19 as Jesus prayed for his disciples. And we saw that there are four specific things that Jesus requests on behalf of his disciples that were with him. The first one, which is very significant, is that Jesus prays that they would be one, even as we, Jesus and the Father, are one. Of all the things that Jesus could have asked the Father for, for his disciples, Jesus prayed that they would remain in unity. It is the first thing that rolls off the lips of Jesus in requesting this from his Father. He prays that they may have my joy filled in themselves. Jesus prays that the disciples would have his joy, that same joy that, 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 that Christ had, even in going to the cross. His prayer was that his disciples, who were about to endure a very difficult time in just moments, right, after the, the crucifixion and the resurrection and the early church kind of launches, um, Jesus prays that their that, that, that his own joy would be theirs. He prays that the Father would keep them from the evil one. Not that they would not experience difficult times. We know surely the disciples experienced hard times. In fact, all but one, the apostle John, were, were, um, uh, were, were martyred for their faith. And so Jesus's prayer that they would be kept from the evil one was not so much that they would not have hard times and difficult times, but in the end of the day, that the enemy would not win. And, and we recognize that these disciples who, who, um, who, who, who died even for their faith still won because even as Christ lives, he, they live with him. He prayed that they would be sanctified in truth, right? That they would be defined by truth, that they would be driven by truth, that they would be guided by truth. And, and we see that's exactly what takes place in the lives of these disciples. And so Jesus prays this 
for his disciples. And what's encouraging is we know that everything that Jesus prays for the Father hears. And, and having the luxury of, of hindsight and looking back in time, we see that is exactly what took place. They, they, re, they remained one, that their joy was full, that they were kept from the evil one, and that they were guided and defined and driven by the truth that Jesus taught them, illuminated by the Holy Spirit. So now as we come to the third focus of Jesus's prayer, he shifts from praying for those who were, who were physically with him in that moment of time to those yet to come, to those who weren't even born yet. He prays for us. Let's take a look at what Jesus prays for. And, and let me just kind of highlight to take note as I read through this, these couple of verses here, take note of how often Jesus highlights the importance of, them, of, of us, the church, being in unity. His prayer for us is the same as his first request for his disciples, that we would be one, even as the Father and Jesus are one. Let's take a look at verse 20 of chapter 17. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now it's very interesting what Jesus does here. Obviously we saw earlier all the things that Jesus requests for um, his disciples who were, who were with him. But then he says, but I don't only request these things for them, but I request the same things for those who come to faith through them, right? And so all the things that Jesus prayed for his disciples, also Jesus replies, applies to us as well. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And here it is, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Again, Jesus is reiterating that truth that he had articulated earlier in this prayer. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I have, known, I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you see the repetitive theme of Jesus's prayer for not only his disciples who were with him, but also for us. His prayer is for the church uh, to be in unity with one another. Remember, Jesus, Jesus knew all things. 
Jesus knew the, the trajectory of the church over the ages. Jesus knew the hardships and obstacles and attacks from the outside as well as from the inside. And Jesus, when praying for the church, did not pray that the hardships would be avoided, but instead Jesus prays that through the hardships, through the difficult times, that the church would be one. What kind of one? One even as the Father and the Son are one. That's an amazing thing to consider, that of all the things Jesus could have prayed for us and for them, we see this consistent theme that the, his prayer for the church is that we would experience unity. Why would Jesus be so intentional about the oneness, the unity of the body of Christ? Why is that so important? Because the oneness of his people are designed to be a reflection of the oneness of the Godhead. Let me repeat that. It's important, and Jesus prays for our unity because the oneness of his people are designed to be a reflection of the oneness of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He says it again in verse 22. That they may be one even as we are one. He says it again in verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. I love the wording that Jesus used here where he says, become perfectly. We recognize that there's a process that takes place here. This idea of not perfection, but even more maturity, right? And so we see a process of maturity, a process of oneness that Jesus is praying for the church to experience, that we would grow in unity with one another, that our, our oneness would be a reflection of the oneness that exists even within the Godhead. God's design is that the unity of the church would reflect the unity of the Godhead. And since the fall of Satan from heaven, the one thing that the devil has always sought to do was to bring disunity amongst God's creation. It is what his mission is. He knows he cannot hurt God, and so he goes after that which God has created. We see it takes place in the heavens before we, uh, we, before we even see the earth and, 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 uh, being created. We recognize that, that Satan uh, rises up and, and desires to even be above the throne of God. And the scripture says that he is cast out because of the pride that is in his heart. But before he is cast out, he has already won over a third of the angels. He has brought disunity and division amongst the created angelic realm. And a third of them are cast out of the heavens. The enemy loves to sow disunity. He then enters a garden 
the Garden of Eden where, where Adam and Eve were in unity with God. They were in unity with one another and he slithers in and he brings in division and discord and he creates disunity between God and his creation because of sin. We see disunity taking place between Adam and Eve. In fact, as we go further, we see disunity taking place between their children, Cain and Abel. And this method of sowing disunity is on display all throughout the Old Testament. We see it taking place all within the New Testament. In fact, we see it clearly in our world today and even in the church. <clears throat> God loves unity because it is a reflection of the Godhead. Psalm 133 in verse one says, behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's the heart of God that we would walk together in unity. Paul in writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter one in verse 10 says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. It is the appeal of the apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit that we would walk in unity. First Peter chapter three and verse eight, Peter writes, finally, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And then Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is a thread that weaves all throughout the scriptures, a call to unity. God loves unity because it is a reflection of the Godhead. It is a reflection of the unity within the Godhead, which is why God hates disunity. God hates disunity. Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter six that there are, there are six things that the Lord hates. In fact, seven that are an abomination to him. Some things that God hates, he hates haughty eyes. He hates a lying tongue. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates a heart that devises wicked plans. He hates feet that make haste to run to evil. He hates a false witness who breathes out lies. And then there's this seventh one, this seventh which he declares is an abomination to the Lord. This seventh one that God hates is one who sows discord among brethren. God hates that one who will come in and create disunity and discord amongst brethren because it goes against the design that God has for his people. We are to be engaged in unity with one another as it is a reflection of the unity that exists within the Godhead. Paul writes to Titus in chapter three and verse 10 and giving him instruction on how the church is to operate and to discipline. He says, as for a person who sows up, who stirs up division, he says to that kind of person who stirs up division, 
after warning him once and twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Their actions actually condemn themselves. Such strong words against those who would create disunity within the body of Christ. Why? Because our unity is to be a reflection of the unity that exists within the Godhead. I pray, Father, that they would be one even as we are one. It is an assault on the design for what God has for the church. You see, Jesus prayed for the unity of the church because he knew that the number one assault on the church from the enemy would be to create disunity. And as the events of Passion Week began to unfold, as Jesus is arrested and the disciples are scattered and Jesus is beaten and crucified, and then lay in that tomb. His disciples had so much opportunity to divide. His disciples had so much opportunity to focus on that which was negative. They had so much opportunity to focus on that which was temporary. You've got Peter denying him not once, but three times. You've got Thomas doubting him after seeing his risen Lord. All the dreams and expectations that they had lay in that tomb. But for the most part, they remained together. For the most part, when when Jesus rose from the dead, they were together in one accord. They were together in the upper room, in unity, when the Spirit of God came upon them and, and, and the church is birthed in Acts chapter two. There was unity amongst them as Jesus prayed for the unity of the, of the disciples that were with him. We see that come to pass. And in time, we see that Peter and Thomas certainly get on board recognizing who Jesus is in full. That was what Jesus prayed for his disciples who were with him, that they would be in unity. And then he prays the same for the church today. What will be the outcome for the church? Will our unity reflect the unity of the Godhead? I've been so grieved over the way the church has been so divided over these last couple of years. The church used to divide over theology, but now we see the church dividing not over theology or even heavenly things, but instead we see the church dividing over political affiliations, Trump or or Biden, Democrat or Republican. We see the church dividing over how to respond during this pandemic. Some would say, well, this isn't even real. Others would scream, how can you even imagine that it's not real? And there's such division, even within the people of God, when it comes to how we ought to navigate 
through this season. As we consider the, the racial tensions in our country right now, and the church is so divided, black against white and white against brown, there's such division on how the church should respond. Should we not respond? There's such disunity and split over the church. Division over should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Should we have virtual church? Should we have live service? Or are those who attend live services, are they being irresponsible and uncaring for the pandemic that's going on around? Or what about those other people who you know, they can go to work and they can go to, to uh, school, and they can go to Walmart, they can go everywhere, but they can't seem to get to church. Are they compromising? There's such divide and so many conclusions that are being drawn about one another? Are there conspiracy theories? Are they not conspiracy theories? Was there voter fraud? Was there not voter fraud? These are conversations. The list goes on and on. As I speak to pastors from all over, we've come to the realization that no matter what we say, no matter what decision that is made, you're always going to upset 50% of the people who listen. We have Christians who sit under the same roof worshiping God that will not even look at each other, that have written each other off because of disagreement over who one voted for or who the other voted for or whether that person is wearing a mask or, or, they're not, or the right kind of a mask or whether they are properly responding to the current events going on in the world around us. Too many decisions, too many conclusions that are being drawn about one another based on all of these temporary things that we see going on in our country. Well, they don't see it like I see it, and so I'm done with them. And all of hell rejoices because our unity that is designed to be a reflection of the Godhead isn't. We need in this day to exercise the fruit of the Spirit, namely patience, with one another. Everyone has been affected in different ways and responds in different ways and, and answers, and the answer can't be to write one another off, but to embrace one another. And you can do that while social distancing. You don't have to write somebody off just because they disagree, but instead we as the church that have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, that blood that makes us the family of God, in the midst of all of the conflict, in the midst of all of the conversations and the arguments and all of the opportunities to divide, as the church we must find and what we must unify around. Let's remember the words written by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 and five, he said, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day draws near. I like what he writes here. He says, he says, let us consider. In other words, let us 
think about how can we do this. In other words, let's be creative. Let's, hey, let's respect one another and where they're at, whether they feel comfortable being in the same room with you or not. Let's get creative on the way in which we can still connect with one another. Let us consider how to stir up love and good works towards one another. Whether we are present in the same room or distant from one another, we can still consider, think about, get creative on how we can connect with one another. That's what we must do as the church of Jesus Christ. Instead of drawing conclusions on what everybody else should be doing and dividing over that, we need to get more creative and more consistent in striving for the unity of the faith that must exist amongst the people of God. There's another reason why unity is so important. And Jesus mentions it twice in his prayer. Look at verse 21 and two, he says, he prays that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Look, so that the world may believe that you sent me. He says it again in verse 22, he prays that the glory you have given me, he says, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. I love that. So that they may be one that they may be one so that the world would believe that you sent me, verse 21, so that they, that they may be one so that the world may know that you sent me, verse 22, that they may be one so that the world may know that you love them, speaking of us, even as you have loved me. In other words, the unity of the church substantiates our identity with Christ to the world or it discredits it because of lack of unity. Jesus is not saying all the world will be saved because they see our unity. He says they will make the connection that we are his. They will understand, they will believe, they will identify us with Christ. They will recognize that we are his and we are of one another. It doesn't mean they're all gonna get saved. The scripture says that even Satan believes that we're from God. It teaches us that, that even God, that even Satan knows that, that we have, um, that, that Jesus is God, but he, we know he's not a believer. And so we recognize that what Jesus is saying here is that the world will see the unity of the church and whether they believe it to the point where they embrace it for their own or they just come to the conclusion that this is the church, Jesus is saying that our unity will substantiate whether we are truly to be identified with Christ or not. The unity of the church demonstrates also the kingdom that we belong to. The unity of the church demonstrates the kingdom that we truly belong to. And if we want the world to hear the message of the gospel, we must recognize that the unity of the church is what will get the attention of those who will respond. But that means that we must remember what kingdom we're truly a part of. 
what kingdom our loyalty ultimately lies. Remembering that what's going on around us as challenging and concerning and even upsetting as it may be, what's going on around us is secondary or second to what God is doing in the midst of it. Because it's not like God has put his plan on hold because our country is in a strange place. No, God is using the environment here to accomplish his plan and purposes in the world today through the church. And our responsibility is to look beyond the temporary, beyond what's going going on so visibly and so loud around us and focus on what God is ultimately doing. Here's an example of what I mean by that. Moments after Jesus prayed this prayer in John 17, it's right after that we see the events begin to unfold. The reason for which Christ came is now upon them. And as we move from chapter 17, we go quickly into chapter 18. And it says, and when Jesus had spoken those words, what words? This prayer that we have been spending time in. It says, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Could you imagine that? To arrest Jesus. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed, with, betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Could you imagine what that must have been like? Here they come with all of their torches and their weapons and their lanterns. And this whole mob comes to arrest Jesus. And they say, and, they say, and, and Jesus says, who do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And at just the utterance of his voice, they all fall to the ground. And obviously they, they get back up. And so he asks them again, whom do you seek? I wonder if they paused a little bit before answering the question. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Speaking of his disciples, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I've lost no one. Focus with me on verse 10. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup 
that my father has given to me. What's a very profound situation that's going on right here. We have all of them coming to arrest Jesus. It must've been a very intense scene. I'm sure that there's a, a huge mob that's there and it would be very easy to get caught up in the moment. And that's exactly what Peter is doing. What Peter is doing is he's not considering what God is doing here. He's not considering what's happening here in the eternal timeline, but he now reacts to the current events. He reacts to the moment and he takes his sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus. And Jesus corrects him and says, Peter, put your sword away. He says, shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? In other words, Peter, don't fight the battle here on this earth. That I came for a purpose. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Peter, raise your sights higher than the natural and recognize I've come here for a purpose and it is to drink that cup that my father has given me. What's interesting here is that what Peter does is he cuts off the ear of Malchus. His, this, this ear is a tool to be able to listen. And what's interesting is what Peter does here is he cuts off the ability for the world to hear the message of the church because Peter is reacting in the natural instead of recognizing that God is doing something very supernatural. He cuts off the ear. And you know, the church is doing that very same thing right now. As the church is reacting to all of the things that are going on around us, as the church is fighting against one another and against all the things that are going around, we are literally cutting the ear of the world so they can't hear the message of the church. We are not to be engaged in fighting all of the world's battles. We need to rise above it all and recognize that we are here here for kingdom purposes. And we do not want our voices to be used for anything that does not have an eternal view in mind. Peter got caught up in the moment and reacted in the flesh and cut off the ear of Malchus. The church needs not to react to what's going on around us, not fighting against the, the, and, and cutting off the ears of the world, but speak rather into the ears of the world, the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. That is the environment that God has placed us in for such a time as this. And we as the church must be unified in our efforts, in our messaging, in our focus, in remembering that we are not of this world. And our kingdom is not of this world. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has for me? Jesus's eyes, even at that moment, we're always on the plan of the Father. May we as the church unite around that very thing, not divide and attack one another, but come into agreement on what God is doing in the world and in the church today to the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. Thank you.